You are listening to the Sojourn Church Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to view a video version of this message, please visit our website, sojournchurch.org. I want to speak this morning on the God of the unlikely. And, um, and I, want to, uh, I want to read several passages of Scripture which may not seem to connect right at first, except for their proximity in, in Scripture. But I, they may not seem to connect to you. And, and then I'm going to begin by talking about some historical things. But I don't, please don't lose heart at the first of this. I'm, I'm, I don't want you to think we're descending into a nothing but a history lecture. But I, I hope by the end of this you'll, you'll, that I can bring it together and the Lord will help us with it. So I'm just, fair warning. All right, if you have your Bibles, take those and turn to Judges chapter 21. Judges 21, verse 25, the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, let me just pause and give you this. That is not a happy verse. Uh, To people that live here in the Republic of Texas, that sounds American. Uh, You know, nobody tells me what to do. But, But that's not what this means. That means that there was no prevailing ethos in Israel, that that everybody lived in some kind of uh, narcissistic sense of of coming together with his own sense of what's right and wrong, which meant that there there was no ethical anchor is what it really means. It uses the king as that, as a symbol of that. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, just turn the page, if you will, to the book of Ruth. I want to read the first few verses of the book of Ruth. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. So let me just pause again. I don't want to take too long with this, but because we, the books in the, in the canon are in subsequent order, we often jump to the wrong conclusion that they happened subsequently historically. But the book of Ruth and the book of Judges and the very first of 1 Samuel all happen at the same time. So the book of Ruth tips us off to that with the way it starts. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the land of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his sons, Milan and Chilon, Ephrathites, means they were from Bethlehem of Ephrathah, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab, The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelled there about 10 years. And Milan and Chilon died, also both of them, and the woman also was left of her two sons and her husband. In other words, she is a widow, she has no source of revenue, no help, no support, and she's in a foreign country, and... She has these two daughters-in-law, Gentile daughters-in-law. Now turn just a few pages to 1 Samuel. Now there was a certain man of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, 
the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. What does it mean? He's also from Ephrata. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and, then, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Put your hands on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray together that in the next few moments, you will speak to our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit. Brush aside every barrier to divine communication, linguistic, generational. Kick open all of the locked doors and rush in over the threshold of our souls. That when we leave here today, we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In Jesus' name, the strong son of God, Amen. 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 amen and amen. amen. In, 1980, uh, in the 1980s, 70s, excuse me, in the 1970s, a national park ranger at the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, a man named Roy Sullivan, was struck by lightning seven times. Does not make me want to visit Shenandoah National Park. Uh, I don't think it's causational in any way, but in 1983, Roy Sullivan committed suicide. In November of 1954, a woman named Ann Hodges was lying on her couch in Alabama taking a nap when a black rock broke through the ceiling and hit her in the hip. They took the rock to the University of Alabama and analyzed it and determined that it was a meteorite. They say that the odds of a human being being struck by a meteorite are one in every 9,000, not people, years. One in every 9,000 years a human being might be hit by a meteorite. But if you had told me that that would happen, I would have guessed Alabama. In 2002, a husband and wife in Belmont, California, won two different lotteries on the same day. They won $126,000 in Fantasy Five and $17 million in Super Lotto Plus. Those who make odds on things like that say that the odds of that happening are one in 24 trillion. However, all these Events are just random episodes of long odds in human living. But as I read the Bible, I read something different. I read a God who is intrigued with the unlikely. Not long odds events, but who, who by sovereign decree chooses unlikely Unlikely seasons, unlikely instruments, and unlikely results. God is the God of the unlikely. So I, I want us to think about these, these historical seasons of past because of the historical season in which we live. So I, 
we are standing in the midst of this crazy season. 2020, uh, according to those who claim to know these things, 2020 has entered into the vocabulary of urban slang as a, a, a term that means kind of crazy, but crazy dangerous. I, I did not know this until I saw a teenage boy recently at a church where I preached in Tennessee, and I had been there before, and he, at that time he introduced me to his girlfriend, beautiful little girl, so he was there alone. I said, well, what happened to your girlfriend? Oh, he said, Dr. Mark, I had to break up with that girl. He said, she went 2020. <laughs> I didn't even know what he meant. <laughs> so seeking in scripture for a word of encouragement for those of us who are living in 2020, I want to look back at some unlikely times in human history, unlikely seasons. Look at England in 1738. We, we, uh, we live in this um, crazy drug-infected in, world. We think it's the first time it's ever happened. But actually, 1738, England was at the height of the gin craze. Now, that's not a phrase that resonates with contemporary Americans, but gin uh, became the drug of choice for the poor people in England in the early 1730s, it was easily made, cheap. The ingredients were cheap. You could make it, you still can make it in your bathtub. Um, and it, it, was, uh, it hit England like an atomic bomb. And there were in, in London 7,000 gin mills, gin bars in, in London, 7,000. That was at the time when London's population was 650,000 people. My, my math tells me that's a gin bar for every 92 persons, men, women, and infants. The average personal consumption of gin in 1738 was 2.2 gallons a year per person, including everybody of every age. I, I, I've put my own arithmetic to the test here. The Atlanta metropolitan area has a little over 6 million people if the same ratio of gin bars to population existed, it would mean that today in Atlanta, in order to equal that, there would have to be 65,217 crack houses, which there certainly isn't. Robbery, prostitution, child sex trafficking, disease, every other concomitant wickedness prevailed in England at the time uh, at this, by the 1730s, fueled by this addiction. Lookook and Hutchison tells us that in 1738, the most common street sign in London was, get drunk here for a penny. It was, it was devastating British culture and life. Let's come a little bit further along in history and jump the pond to the United States. Post-Revolutionary War, the United States was expanding into the wild frontier, the far west. We're not talking about Texas. In 1798, it was Tennessee. And Kentucky was the wild west. Post-Revolutionary War, frontier, wild west Kentucky, riddled with alcoholism. Avaricious land grabbers were pushing the poor off of their land. 
violence inhabited the roads, armed robbery. It was dangerous to ride the roads of Tennessee and Kentucky, and sexual promiscuity was everywhere in the resultant diseases. 1798 was a, a year of nightmare in the, in the wild west of Tennessee and Kentucky. Well, let's come a little closer. 1967, it's the year that Allison and I got married. I graduated from high school in 1966. 1967, we got married. I was 19, my wife was 17. I sat at her university recently where I preached my wife and I got married at 19 and 17, and the little brats thought I said we got married in 1917. <laughs> <laughs> we got married in 1967, which to, in this young congregation, sounds to you about like 1917. Haight-Ashbury District of San Francisco it was at the height of the hippie craze. Anybody in here old enough to remember the summer of love? If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair because you're going to meet some loving people there. I saw several people flashing me peace signs. <laughs> you miss those days, do you? We all trooped out to San Francisco and thought we were gonna find the summer of love. Instead, we found the Zodiac Killer. Hardened street pimps turned teenagers from the Midwest into street walkers and free love, free drugs turned out to be a nightmare. The summer of love was a summer of cultural and physical and emotional devastation. One can hardly imagine less likely seasons for anything very good to happen. Well, let's go back. 1738. I believe, this is a dreadful anthropomorphism, but just go with it for a moment, okay? And, and maybe borderline blasphemous, but stay with me. <laughs> Sometimes I have the idea that God stands at the parapet of heaven and looks over humanity and says, now, whom shall I choose? And the angels all stand behind him. And when God says, there's my guy, I, I envision the angels saying, mm. <laughs> good Lord, <laughs> that's just who we were thinking. <laughs> So God says, 1738, England, England is drowning in gin. And God says, I, I need an instrument. For this unlikely season, I need an unlikely instrument. So in the middle 1730s, three young students at Oxford, um, two brothers, John Wesley and his brother Charles and another student named George Whitfield, they, they formed themselves into a prayer group, the three of them, which they, to which they affixed the humble title of the Holy Club. <laughs> when John and Charles graduate, they say they, they, they want to serve God the most sacrificially. They, they are legalistic in the extreme. Where is the worst place? The worst place on earth to serve God, the place that required the greatest sacrifice, the most horrible place on earth. And they said, we know Georgia. 
And it's a new colony under the leadership of its founder, General Oglethorpe. And they come to Georgia to be missionaries to the Indians. Neither of them ever sees an Indian. Charles, because of his supreme education, is drafted, conscripted, really, by General Oglethorpe to become his private secretary. Char uh, John Wesley is sent to be the pastor of a parish church in Savannah, Georgia, an upscale, high-dollar Anglican church in Savannah, uh, and he is supremely ill-equipped to be a, a parish priest at such a church. John Wesley quickly falls in love with the beautiful daughter of a very wealthy young man and proposes marriage to her, and she rejects him. In his emotional state, angry and feeling rejected, the next Sunday when she comes forward for the sacraments, he refuses to serve her. <laughs> but in the Church of England, there is only one reason that you can refuse publicly to administer the sacraments to a woman, and that is if she is demonstrably promiscuous. So by passing her, he makes a public accusation that she's a harlot. Her father immediately sues him for libel. He has to flee through the Georgia swamp by night to, her, to his brother at General Oglethorpe's headquarters. And Charles and General Oglethorpe put John Wesley on a ship bound for England. And he writes in his diary, I went to Georgia to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? a failed missionary, emotionally overwrought, legalistic, five foot four inches tall. God, I love knowing that. <laughs> With a high-pitched nasal voice that was irritating and a legalistic nature. A failed missionary on his way home to England with his tail between his legs. And God says, my man. <laughs> That's my, that's my man. <laughs> what happened? Revival, like perhaps the world, had not seen since the upper room and probably has not seen since, even including charismatic renewal movement. John Wesley may not be the father of contemporary Pentecostalism, but he's certainly the godfather. A revival that swept England changed laws, changed culture, transformed England, leapt the oceans. Thomas Koch went to India, Francis Asbury to the, to the colonies, to the United, what became the United States, a worldwide revival that spawned multiple churches. Not just the United Methodist Church, but the Wesleyan Church, the, the Salvation Army, the, the Holiness Movement. An unlikely time, 1738, you look at England, Drowning in gin and a miserable, wretched little failed missionary on his way home from Georgia. An unlikely moment, an unlikely instrument, and unlikely results. What about 1798 here in the United States, post-revolutionary war United States? God looks at all of the, the nightmare going on in the American frontier. Whom shall he choose? Certainly the, the pastor of some great church in Boston or Philadelphia or, or New York to go out there to these illiterate frontiersmen and bring the word of God. Instead, God chooses little tiny churches in Kentucky and Tennessee with the, in villages with exciting names like 
Muddy River. And my personal favorite, Claylick. <laughs> and Cane Ridge. The Cane Ridge revival broke out in the American frontier. Remember this at a time when there's nobody can send an email. Nothing's on the internet. At one point, 20,000 people gathered in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. A revival that swept the frontier like wildfire. An unlikely time. Unlikely instrument, little tiny village churches on the frontier with semi-literate preachers. What about, what about Haight-Ashbury? What about the, the hippie time, the anti-war, anti-culture? Timothy Leary told us to tune in, turn on, and drop out. Where shall a revival come from that will sweep San Francisco and the nation and subsequently the world? God, God said, I've got just the right choice. Who, who, who will reach these hippies? God said, I know, hippies. With dirty feet and bell-bottom trousers stoned out of their skulls, they realized that what they had bought into was a lie. Unwilling to return to the self-indulgent capitalism of their parents and stranded between that and the devastation of Haight-Ashbury, they turned to Jesus. And the vanguard of the charismatic renewal movement was actually the Jesus people. Kids who, who the night before had been stoned out of their skulls are now playing guitars on park benches and singing songs about Jesus. And the Jesus movement became the, the vanguard of a charismatic renewal movement. There are 305 million charismatics in the world today. And it is growing the fastest growing religious movement in the world. And it is a movement without a man. It's a movement. There is no John Wesley. Oh, there's people who wrote books or helped it along, but actually it just began with teenagers who felt that getting high on Jesus might be better than getting high on drugs. What, what do we say to all these things? This is not, these are not historical flukes. Look at, look at the scriptures. Look at just even these three which we chose. What an unlikely time. The book of Judges, somebody said the book of Judges is a book of champions. Yes, yes, but it is a book of gradually descending craziness. It's a, it's a roller coaster that finally just oozes out into a muddy delta and, and, and ends. The, the closing stories of the book of Judges are so gritty, you you. You can hardly even stand to mention them in church. And, and finally just ends with this, everybody in Israel just developed his own ethical code and it was a nightmare. The book of Judges just ends horribly and you turn the page. And God seems to say, I need to further my redemptive purpose. 
I choose the season of the book of Judges in which to find an unlikely instrument to bring into the DNA of Messiah Emmanuel exactly the right recipe that I need to produce Jesus of Nazareth more than a thousand years from now. And as he stands on the edge of heaven and looks at earth, the angels say, who, who will you choose, Lord? Who will you choose? And he says, well, here's this little widow woman from Israel. She's gone to Moab, Jordan. She's gone across the river there to prosper while Israel is in a famine and her husband dies. Her boys get married and then they die and she is left alone and impoverished in a foreign country with nothing. In fact, worse than nothing. Worse than nothing. She's got two Gentile daughters-in-law, not exactly the dream of a Jewish woman. She releases them. Go home to your families. Even according to Jewish law, she said, this is useless. By the time I got married, had a son, he grows up to marriageable age. You're too old, I'm too old, go. So Orpah goes home. And Ruth says this famous speech of all her, you know, whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God shall be my God. I've seen it at contemporary weddings where the bride and groom say that to each other. That's, that's not biblical. You want to use it at a wedding, have the bride turn around and say it to her mother-in-law. <laughs> Let's see how that works. <laughs> and so Naomi returns, Naomi returns to Bethlehem. This Gentile daughter-in-law stuck to the bottom of her shoe like bubblegum. And, and when she comes into Bethlehem, the people say, uh, rhetorical, like if I see Chris in Ohio somewhere, I'm not expecting to see him, and I just say, oh, Pastor Chris, is that you? Of course it's him. And, but you say, oh, is that you? And they rush out and say, Naomi, is that you? And she makes a, she makes a wordplay on her, on her name in Hebrew. Naomi means full, but not full like you just ate, but full, fullness, like a, a, a basket full of fruit, fullness of blessings. Are you Naomi? She says, why would you call me Naomi? When I left here, I was full. She said, but the Almighty hath afflicted me. This is God's fault. The Almighty hath afflicted me. So don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Marah, bitter. Bitter as in toxically bitter. So, So the angels say, Lord, whom will you choose? Well, as an angry, bitter old widow with a Gentile daughter-in-law who curses me. I I think that's who I need. And so so she sends her Gentile daughter-in-law into the field to to glean. We don't understand the rule of gleaning, but gleaning is a a part of the the law, the Jewish law. You're not allowed to... uh, you're not allowed to harvest at the corners. You have to turn the harvester this way. So you leave the corners. And then once you harvest, you kind of go back. You do the best you can do. And the poor people would all line the fields, wait for the first harvest to go by, and then they'd rush in and, and do it. So Ruth goes to join the gleaners. And when she comes home, she's just burdened. Naomi says, where'd you, you get all that stuff? And she said, well, funny thing happened. I was gleaning and... This handsome man rode up and said, what's your name? I told him, and, and he just told his people to load me up. She said, describe him to me. So she, she 
describes him and Naomi says, that's my kinsman, Boaz. Listen, tonight when you go down there, put some lipstick on. <laughs> and of course, it's romantic. Boaz and Ruth are married. They have a child named Obed. Obed marries. His wife has a child named Jesse. Jesse marries. His wife has a child named David. So St. Paul says, of this man, David's seed, we would say DNA. Of this man's DNA will come the Savior of the world. So God says, I need to add one little recipe into the DNA that will produce Messiah. And what do I need? A bitter, angry old widow and a Gentile. Perfect. <laughs> Hannah was married to Elkanah, childless. We... we we don't grasp childlessness as the humiliation that it was for a, a, a Jewish woman in the, in the Old Testament, and even now, childlessness. It's just galling to her. So she goes to Shiloh to the tabernacle, and she's praying. This will, this will give you an insight into how fallen the priesthood was, that the, that the high priest can't tell the difference between prayer and drunkenness. So she's praying and praying, God, help me, God, give me a baby, God, give me a baby. And Eli comes and says to her, why would you come here stoned? Why are you doing? She says, I'm not stoned, I'm praying. <laughs> and God says, I need a prophet that can speak into the end of the book of Judges and bridge the gap to the beginning of the monarchy and the coming of King David. I need a Colossus who will stand with one foot in the book of Judges and one foot in the monarchy and who will anoint the future, the greatest king Israel will ever have. I need such a prophet and I will raise him up from the barren womb of a woman at the end of the book of Judges. And her child promised to her and received is the great prophet Samuel. An unlikely time, an unlikely instrument, and unlikely results. It, it, is, it is a scriptural principle. It's not just, it's not just a, a concept. I'm not dreaming something up. You could document it over and over again. I, I don't want to go on all day about it, but look at, look at Moses. 400, 430 years the Hebrew people are in bondage in Egypt. 430 years, nearly a half a millennium. If you're going to redeem something, all, all first responders will tell you, the faster you can get to a crisis, the more likely you are to, to be able to resolve it. The longer the crisis prevails, the less likely you are to have any kind of rescue or help or healing. So year after year, decade after decade, century after century, the angels say, Lord, wouldn't you like to kind of, you know, help them? God says, I'm waiting for the right moment. 
I'm just waiting for the right moment, which will be an unlikely moment. So unlikely that by the time of the coming of Moses, they are so in bondage physically, emotionally, spiritually, that Moses says to God, they don't even know your name anymore. When I say the God of your fathers that sent me, they're going to say, what's his name? They don't even, they've lost you. And God says, perfect. <laughs> and then whom shall I choose? And he chooses an 80-year-old man who's been living for 40 years on the backside of the Midianite desert who can't go back to Egypt because there's a price on his head because the last time he was there, he committed involuntary voluntary manslaughter. God says, what I need is an 80-year-old felon. <laughs> an unlikely instrument. In the first century of the church, Jesus said to the church, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the response of the apostolic community was like a Monty Python skit. They said, they said Lord, we hear you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We hear you. We know exactly what that means. Stay here in Jerusalem and only talk to Jews. <laughs> so God says, I've got to have somebody that can burst through the walls of sectarianism and carry the gospel of salvation by faith, the message of redemptive grace to a Gentile world. I've got to have someone who will lay his life on the line year after year after year after year, and finally die for me because he loves Jesus so much. And the angels say, Lord, have you, have you got somebody more? What do I say, Peter? No, 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 it's not St. Peter. John, no. <laughs> John. Who do you choose? Oh, here's a guy who is a trigger man for the Sanhedrin who hates Christians so badly that he has contributed to the execution of the first Christian martyr and now has letters from the chief priest to go all the way to Syria, to Damascus, and arrest believing Jews there and bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. God says, that's my man. <laughs> and Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to arrest believing Jews there is transformed in a blinding moment. To St. Paul. What does it all mean? What could it possibly mean to us in this year that's gone 2020? What could it mean to us? I, I, I'm neither a prophet nor the child of a prophet. I'm not, I'm not prophesying. I'm not even making a prediction. What I am saying is, if we can trace the footsteps of God through human history, maybe we can get a sense of the way he works. And I don't want to sound presumptuous to say about how we know how God thinks, but maybe we can sense how he works, how he thinks, how he moves. Suppose right now God is peering over the balustrade of heaven into the craziness of the United States in 2020. And he says, I, 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 need, I need somebody that can preach racial healing that can preach a gospel of peace and love and reconciliation. I, I, need, I need a voice of, of such anointed love. And he says, there's a KKK camp in South Alabama. 
and it's some ignorant jackleg redneck who's shooting a target of Nelson Mandela with an AK-47. <laughs> That's my man. I'm not prophesying that. I'm saying, wouldn't it be like God? Or he says, I need someone to preach a, a respect for authority, a love for, for decency and, and humanity and, and who will call people from the sin and wickedness of rebellion, which is like unto witchcraft. I need a voice that will summon rebels into a sense of, of the witness of the authority of God over their lives and the authority of God-placed leadership in their lives. Who will I choose? And he looks into some riot that's burning down a city somewhere and he finds some Antifa thug hitting a cop in the head with a skateboard and God says, that's my man. There's my man. I'm not saying he will do either of those things. I'm saying it would be just like him. So what do we say then? It is this. We, we, we dare not allow ourselves to be shaken by what we're going through. I know, I know what people are thinking. Everybody, this is an unlikely time for anything very good to come out of this. This is pretty unlikely. I say, yes, it is. <laughs> this is really unlikely. I, I, I can't imagine anything good coming out of this. Perfect. It gives me hope. Look, God is not shaken by human history. God didn't wake up every morning and look at the New York Times to find out what's going on. Whoa, wasn't expecting that. <laughs> if he's reading a newspaper, it isn't the Times. <laughs> okay, stay calm. <laughs> no, history is unfolding in the palm of his hand. You remember the seven seals in the book of Revelation, the scroll? And John weeps because... Uh, there's no one worthy to open them. They are the epochs of human history. And, and as those seals open, human history moves forward, but they can't move forward until they open. But those, those seals don't pop off at random like the buttons off a fat man's coat. <laughs> they open by the sovereign decree of Almighty God through his word. So we may be shaken. God is not. We may struggle with fear. God doesn't. God looks into human history with a divine viewpoint to which we can not really arrive. But we trust him for it. This year has gone 2020, hasn't it? And let me tell you something. It's not over. But I refuse to be afraid. I refuse to be shaken because... I know he is not shaken, who is not only God of human history, but listen, God is operative. He is God in human history. John Wesley didn't just burst full grown from the forehead of Zeus. God chose John Wesley. God chose Paul the apostle. God chooses unlikely times, unlikely instruments, and the unlikeliest of all results So let me give you one more and then we'll close. Any of you remember Y2K? Remember that? The world and unfortunately the church just went nuts. 
spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christians. They're stockpiling green beans and burying gold in the backyard. <laughs> now, going to get my green beans as they pry my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> I, I had a question. Were you really going to shoot anybody for those beans? <laughs> Here's another question. Didn't occur to anybody to, like, share the beans? I'm just... <laughs> well, we remember that. Planes are going to all fall out of the sky. The banks will be... Remember the whole thing? I'm not trying to embarrass you. <laughs> I, I don't remember it. <laughs> no, but the same thing happened in the previous century. When the century turned from the 19th century to the 20th century, the same thing happened. Crazy. Craziness. In the few years following that century turn, God said... I need an instrument that will bring a unique and new kind of revival. I, I, need, I need someone that is so different, so different from anybody that we've ever had before. And he chose an illiterate, one-eyed black man named William Seymour. William Seymour received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and went to probably the least likely city in the world for a revival to start. <laughs> How about Los Angeles? <laughs> and Seymour found an abandoned livery stable. It had been an African Methodist Episcopal church. It had gone bankrupt. They sold it to a livery stable. The livery stable went bankrupt. It's empty. And William Seymour took over an abandoned livery stable. I, I figured the cleanup was something. <laughs> so you got a one-eyed black preacher who's so illiterate he can't read the Bible he holds under his arm in, a, in an abandoned livery stable on Azusa Street in downtown Los Angeles. And from that man, there are now 279 million classical Pentecostals. From the Jesus people, there are 305 million charismatics, 580 million, more than a half a billion spirit-filled Christians worldwide from hippies and a one-eyed black man. What do we say to these things? We are not abandoned. We, we are not bereft because God is not bereft. We don't know that this is the moment, but God knows. And we don't know whom he shall choose, but God knows. And his eye moves to and fro through the earth, seeking upon whom he shall lay his hand. Now, in closing, what does it mean to you? That's... that's this whole thing may be a little bit huge to think on. So let's bring it down. What does it mean to you? And it is this. This may be an unlikely season in your life. And you may be <clears throat> an unlikely instrument in somebody else's unlikely season. So <laughs> I'm not trying to frighten you, but what if God chooses you? You say, oh, Lord, my brother-in-law, oh, God, he's just drunk as Cooter Brown. 
God, God, send, some, send somebody to my brother-in-law. And the Lord says, I believe I will. <laughs> you. Say, oh, Lord, that's pretty unlikely I'd reach him. God says, perfect. Maybe it's unlikely that you reach your next-door neighbor's wild teenager. Maybe it's pretty unlikely that God would choose you to invite to church one Sunday morning that person whose life will be changed, whose grandchild will become the evangelist of the next hundred years. There is an unlikely story for every person in this room. God is the God of the unlikely. The, the fun part to me is I don't know you. See, there's probably somebody sitting here, and you're only here because your wife made you. And you say, oh, I'll ride, I'll go, get the woman off my back. You're sitting here just thinking to yourself, oh, it'll be pretty unlikely. Uh-oh. <laughs> it amuses me. It amuses me when God chooses people who they themselves consider themselves to be unlikely. The God of the unlikely chooses unlikely instruments to accomplish unlikely ends because he is, after all, God. Thank you for listening to the Sojourn Church podcast. For more messages or content similar to this, please visit our website. If you would like to support our ministry, please visit the first link in the show description or visit sojournchurch.org give.